Today we learn from a legend. Janet is one of the best operators and board members in the world. She's worked with entrepreneurs that we all know and love, as well as founding her own brand, Laura Mercier, and taking that from zero to $100 million in revenue. During our talk, we talk about her guidance for other female entrepreneurs, what she looks for in a company to invest, and I make her pick between a national championship for her beloved University of Alabama and a World Series for the Houston Astros, where she serves on the board. I really recommend today's episode, and if you really like it, remember to be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe. Enjoy the show, guys. Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Welcome to Earned, everybody. Today, we are going to learn from one of the best operators in the world when it comes to beauty and retail, Janet Gerwich. Gerwich, sorry. Um, welcome to the show, Janet. Hi, Connor. Very excited to be here. I am really excited to have you on the show because I think I get to ask you all the questions that I might not want to ask if we were just having a regular meeting and, uh, and you've got to answer them live on the, uh, on the air. Well, I guess recorded on the air at least. That'll be fun. Well, for those that don't know you, which I don't know who doesn't know you, but if they don't, um, want to give them a quick background. So you spent 18 years in retail, originally at Foley's and then as the executive vice president at Neiman Marcus. You then founded and sold your own brand, Laura Mercier, with the eponymous artist or makeup artist, got that to $100 million in sales, at, and then have now bought that brand back, um, which is one of the more interesting stories I've heard, as well as serving on boards like Tatcha, First Aid Beauty, Urban Decay as an investor, and then most recently on the board of Olaplex, which uh, Advent invested in at a billion dollar valuation, is now valued north of $15 billion, where you serve on the board as an operating partner, um, and then also on the board of the Houston Astros. So that is, that's a lot of experiences. We've got to pack into 45 minutes, but I am going to do my best. Ready. <laughs> so let's talk about reacquiring your own brand. Um, I'd really like to hear about that story before we get into all your background, because I do want to get into your background as well. But was that a bit of a kind of a surreal experience to have this brand that you spent so much time taking from zero to $100 million in sales? And I think it's changed hands a couple times and now you're bringing it back into the fold. What has that experience been like uh, first? And then second, where do you see the opportunities for that brand, right? Like how do you, what is different about taking a brand that exists, um, you know, and has existed for a long time versus taking something from scratch? Um, I'd love to start there. Well, it, it's a dream. I would have never thought a brand that I built from my head uh, and sold uh, in its 13th year. Um, and I so actually sold it to Amway, who then sold it to Shiseido. Yep. Um, but have watched it all along, and it's just for any entrepreneur. It is a challenge to watch someone else own your brand. And so it never entered my mind it would be available. Shiseido decided to sell three brands. Uh, we were notified last March, March 2021, they were selling Bare Minerals, Laura Mercier, and Buxom. And I think when they called me and told me that, I couldn't believe it. Um, but uh, it happened. It all worked out. Obviously, we did a tremendous amount of work, uh, and Shiseido was great. And we bought it. And seriously, we just got it December 6th, even though we announced it, I think, at the end of August. So, so it's a complicated deal, a carve-out. I've never done a carve-out, totally different experience, but I'm beyond excited. What are, so what's the, what's the idea behind purchasing these brands? Are these men, is this meant to be the start of a platform? Is this really just about owning these three brands and helping them to grow? And what do you think, like, why do you think you guys are positioned to, to help them be successful? Well, I'm very impressed with how Advent was thinking of this. And that is we uh, hired Pascal Houdier, who will be the CEO of these three brands. So these okay. three brands uh, now will be its own company. And he'll have a very strong team um, of uh, a CMO, CFO, etc. And right now, our goal is just to get them all at, at a great place. They're brands with terrific history and authentic stories. We want to make sure that's showing. And in the case of Laura Mercier, 
We're totally true to the history of the brand, what it was built on, uh, which is qual top quality product. That's our, been our number one thing. Focus on the face. Flawless face is sort of what we used uh, because Laura Mercier was known for, although you need great skin care if you really want to change how you look on your face, the skin on your face. She was terrific. And if you need to go out tonight, we had the, <laughs> you know, we have the right products to help you and the right training. So those are the, the key things. We will be true to the brand and um, I'm very excited about it. Have they been experiencing, so you talk about kind of, you know, if you want to go out tonight and obviously the pandemic's played a really big role in whether or not people are going out at all. Um, and I know that from the data that we saw in 2020, 2021, you know, people were just talking about makeup a lot less, right? Um, and so what's the, you know, how have they kind of worked through that? And are they seeing the same kind of resurgence? We've heard there's a resurgence in makeup. Are they seeing the same kind of thing kind of in the second half of this year? Or is it still still to come? Well, kind of both. Um, makeup was hurting even pre, you know, uh, pandemic. Skincare and hair care were the categories that were really experiencing great growth. But we are seeing, and and at the end of 2021, some great results. So I would say, and Laura Mercier just launched at Ulta. It had not. It had been at Sephora um, exclusively for like 15 years. So. It, it, there's still lots of room for growth. It's very much a global company and always did well in Asia. And Flawless Face really resonates in Asia, probably the reason Shiseido was interested. Yeah. And they have done a particularly good job, Laura Mercier in Asia, just launched in China in September. How is the Chinese launch going? It's going well. I mean, it's really going well. And actually in our Carving out's very complicated, but they're going to run that for two years, Asia and uh, Laura Mercier, while we build up uh, with Pascal. And actually, it's funny you bring it back to Pascal. I'd love to hear about, were you involved in that selection process for him? What was the criteria you guys were looking for in terms of bringing on an outside CEO to help run it? Um, like, what is it about him that made him kind of the right fit? He had, he had done a carve out. This is a very complicated, mm -hmm. I'm used to building a company, a solo company and selling it 100% to a strategic. Yep. Um, he has done a carve out. He did a carve out for Hinkle really with, from Shiseido with hair products. Mm -hmm. So he has the kind of expertise. He has a great background from Procter & Gamble. And we really need someone who understands the nuances of a carve out, which is a, a very different. So I think that's, you know, that was one of the key things uh, to help Pascal get this job. And he's very excited about it. So, Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it makes a lot of sense, right? Because within these larger conglomerates, if you're not the biggest or you're not the hottest or you're not the one that's like centered in the physical location of the headquarters, you can often not get the same attention that you would if it was an independent entity, right? So, so true. Yeah. That's why we think these brands have so much potential. They they all are of size. Well, Buxom is a small company, but both Bear and Laura Mercier are, are sizable brands. Yep. So we just have to go in and look at each one in detail and see what is it? Is it product? Is it social? You know, what do we do to elevate it to hopefully double the, their businesses? Well, and honestly, I expect the uh, Laura Mercier launch in Ulta to go quite well, um, mostly because when we look at the data for Laura Mercier, the brand, um, they've done really well on social, particularly on with influencers. And, and what we've seen, what I've noticed over time is that the brands that do really well there, tend to do better in specialty retail. Because if you think about kind of who's following a makeup artist online, it's not like your average consumer, right? They don't go and shop at CVS. They don't go and shop probably even at Macy's. They're going to go to the place that has the best selection, the best expertise, the best options, which I think really is Sephora and Ulta, at least within the US at this point. And so I have to imagine that'll, that'll go well, which is good. Um, Probably a difficult conversation with Sephora, but I can imagine it's uh, good for the brand at least. Well, they did it prior to us getting there. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, they I took care of that conversation for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. 
Um, but anyway, well, Sephora has been great, a great, great partner for, for Lauren Mercier as well. Yeah. So, but, but we only look at businesses that have great global potential um, and I think that have a reason to be, and, and these brands do. Yeah. Well, let's, let's take a step back in your career, right? So you actually started in retail, like Sephora and Ulta, right? At Foley's, then eventually at Neiman Marcus. Um, tell me about that kind of experience. One, how, kind of how you got there. Um, I think I'm, I'm curious if you've, uh, you have a, the framed letter somewhere there in your office. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to see this, this uh, famed framed letter, but uh, would love to hear about that experience, kind of how you got there. And then separately, you know, what did that, what did that experience, because that's a huge chunk of your career. It's almost two full decades. Um, how has that changed your own approach to kind of building brands? Because that's been, I really feel like the second half of your career is building brands versus um, retailing them. So true. Well, I think it was a great, it was sort of my MBA, yep. I feel, in the retail world. Uh, my father owned a chain of shoe stores in Mississippi. Mm. And so I was always interested. I grew up in Mississippi and I was dying to go to some other places. So I also thought that it would be a great opportunity to travel, fashion. I loved business, mixing business and fashion. So I, I started out fashion. That's what I thought my interest would be. And, um, and, and what I learned, particularly at Neiman's, is I got to know intimately so many brands, both fashion and beauty and jewelry and, I mean, many other things. And I kind of took mental notes. Like I really took a page out of maybe David Yerman and I maybe took a page out of Chanel, but I looked at different things. And on some of those pages, I thought, I'm not going to do that with my own brand. Or I am definitely going to do that to build a brand that has longevity. So I learned on both sides things that seemed right to me and things that did not. And I feel it was mainly at Neiman's when I got to know some of these brands that had, you know, 100 years of, of history. It was so interesting. Um, but I went to Neiman's. They said, we want the next CEO to be a woman. Mm -hmm. And Terry Lundgren, thank God for Terry Lundgren, who hired me. Uh, as his executive vice president, but surprised me that he shortly left to go to Macy's. Um, and um, Bert Tansky, who was at Bergdorf, Neiman's and Bergdorf's owned together, um, came down to be the CEO. And uh, it was just a great, great experience from dinner with Princess Diana to oh. Pamela Harriman at the, uh, the U.S. Embassy in France. It was just, you know, Neiman's at the time. It was a very different time, but my God, it was such an exciting time. But we had Bobby Brown. Bobby had been a makeup artist in the Frederick Fakai Salon, which was at the top level of Bergdorf at that time. And she went to Bert and said, if I did 10 lipsticks, I, people are wearing browns, not the pinks and reds that the large companies are saying we should all wear. Um, I'd like to do 10 lipsticks. And he goes, what am I going to do with 10 lipsticks? And she said, put it by the up escalator uh, <laughs> on the first floor. And he did it. And he said, how many do you think you can sell? She said, I think I can sell a hundred in a month. She sold a hundred in a week. And that was how Bobby Brown got started. So he said, you know, can you make some other things? <laughs> can you do that again? <laughs> amazing. And of course she had a great success. So he had us try her at Neiman's. We, we started with three stores and I was so fascinated by, because there were no indie brands. I mean, this is so ahead of time and to many of your listeners, they can't imagine this. I mean, but it was just the large brands and it's interesting in fashion, there was so much newness and so many new brands, but in beauty, there were not the same brands had been true for 20 years. And so it was a it was a very interesting time and a, a very key point for Bobby to enter. But I thought it was just Neiman's and I thought it was just Bobby. Then I went to London for the fashion shows and I was at Harvey Nichols at a Tuesday morning and I see all these consumers at one counter. And I'm thinking, wonder what that is. And I look and it's Mac. Uh, and I saw, you know, I saw many um uh, Middle Eastern women standing there. I saw young English girls. I saw American tourists. So I thought, you know what? This is, this is an inflection point. 
Yep. It's not just me and Bobby and Neiman's. It's happening. And I, and really I was early. I mean, Bobby was very early. She and I have talked about this. <laughs> um, and we see the big numbers people are paid today for their brands. And like, we really so sorry we sold so soon. But, <laughs> but we, she really was first. Yep. And, and I truly got the idea from Bobby, but I did it with Laura Mercier, who had a very different approach than Bobby. Uh, a French makeup artist who loved color. It was just very different. But anyway, um, that's where I got the idea. Just paying attention, paying attention. I mean, real world observations are, uh, are a thing, right? And I know that I like, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase, um, but I think it's a Steve Jobs phrase. Um, well, I, I know it's a Steve Jobs phrase, but the exact language it's, um, you know, your whole world changes when you look around and you realize that everything around you, right? Everything that is built, this laptop, this house, that bike, this whatever, are all built by people that are no smarter than yourself, right? And that you can, if you want to, build one of those things, right? You can change the world around you. You don't just operate within it. And, um, and it's like, I mean, it's just a profound realization when you say like, oh, I could do that. Right. Like I can do that. Right. And then you just do it. And it's like, whoa, like that's weird. This didn't exist. And now it exists because I decided for it to be right. Um, it's cool. What's interesting to me about your journey and is I think in other interviews, you've said one, it was probably the only time I had any in entrepreneurial uh, impulse. And then two, you said, I'd like fashion, not beauty, right? I was a bigger into fashion than beauty. And now that's become like your career, right? Is like either helping other entrepreneurs and almost all, you know, very, you know, concentrated, at least in beauty. Um, looking back on it, have you kind of changed your opinion when it comes to entrepreneurial, being an entrepreneur into the beauty sector? Or is that, are you still kind of, if you had a choice, you'd go back to fashion if you had, if you had your preference? No, I really love beauty, but beauty is much more interesting now. I yeah. feel the time I entered it, you just had these big behemoths who would tell everyone, no matter how they looked, I'm brunette, brown eyes. They would tell the blonde with blue eyes. They would tell an African-American woman that we all should be wearing X color eyeshadow this year. Yep. And, you know, so I found it sort of dictatorial, not a realistic uh I, I just didn't see it realistic. And so I loved when I met Bobby, to be honest. I mean, she said, I cannot make someone look like the cover of Vogue, but I can make them look the best they can look. And and I loved that. And Laura Mercier was very true to that. Be true to yourself. And I'm going to give you the tools and the education. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of gift with purchase, we, we did education with purchase. We had a lot of great makeup artists who could teach you how to apply your makeup and you would feel great about it. So no, I, I love beauty and um, I mean, I love fashion too, but I, I as, far, <laughs> as far as business, I, I have really enjoyed being in the beauty business and it's changed dramatically. As you know, I feel like we need to find a way to get you some exposure to fashion. I feel like personally responsible, like your life won't be complete if you don't end up doing some more work in that side of the field. But, uh, <laughs> Actually, I'd be curious. This is actually a really good question for you specifically. So one of the things that's really interesting for me is there's a very robust ecosystem of investors um, and frankly, even operators on the beauty side. Um, but there's really not that same ecosystem in fashion, it feels like, right? Like you just don't see the same and you don't see that same like start a brand grow a brand, sell a brand. And I think that's part of what keeps investors kind of out. Um, what's your experience? Like, why is there not that same community, or maybe I'm just not exposed to it, of, of uh, kind of, of investors and operators on the fashion side? Well, I think it ha there has been in the past, not now and not in, say, the last 10 years because of distribution channel. That's what mm. I would say. Um, because we have in the United States, Sephora and Ulta, who are huge and can help you launch and build great brands yep. in addition to your own D to C, in addition to other things. So um, I think with fashion, 
you really had the stores, the department stores, the fine specialty stores, but you don't have this chain where you can all of a sudden be in 350 doors mm. or a thousand door, you know, depending. So I think it's been distribution channel. Yeah. Well then why, I feel like we need to start one. Uh, <laughs> that's the next one. Um, yeah. In terms of investing, right? So for you, you've invested in a bunch of companies, many that are successful, right? So I think after selling Laura Mercier, you joined Castanea and you invested in Tatcha, First Aid Beauty, Urban Decay, during the first kind of round of Urban Decay, which all got acquired by Strategics, Unilever, P&G, L'Oreal, respectively. Um, you know, what do you look for prior to making an investment or prior to saying, like, I think this is a brand we should invest in? Um, what are the kind of pillars that you're looking for? Um, great question. So I started with Castanea, which was owned by the same family that owned Neiman's and Bergdorf's. Mm, okay. That's, you know, like people wonder, like, how did I, without my Harvard MBA, without a, or any MBA for that matter, um, how did I get with this group? And that's how. So they sold Neiman's and Bergdorf. Therefore, I had to sell Lord Mercier. They owned 51%. They also owned 51% of Kate Spade. We both had to sell. But um, having said that, then they said to me, do you want to do beauty in private equity? So the first company available, I mean, it was for sale. Or it was urban and it had sold a couple of times, actually. Oh, okay. I thought it was the first go around. Okay. No, no, no. It had sold to LVMH very early. Mm. And uh, But anyway, we bought it from the Fallick family in, in, uh, in Florida and we bought it 100%, and it's just interesting. They were doing $40 million in revenues. We paid $40 million. <laughs> You don't see that very much anymore. <laughs> no. And then we did sell it in 36 months for about three sixty, dollars something like that. So, um, but what I learned is um, it was a great brand. First of all, I didn't want to ever do anything like Laura Mercier. I just, that's my heart. So I didn't want to compete. Um, and Urban was just diametrically different. She went for an edgy girl, a girl that wore lots of color, that uh, was really more fun. We were trying to be chic, classy, you know, and I loved that differentiation. Um, so one, I wanted a founder, and Wendy Zomner was still there. She was the Urban Decay girl. She still was the head of creative. And she had just created a palette for Christmas called Naked. And when I saw it at the board meeting, and I remember it was my birthday because it was December 4th, she said, oh, my God, we sold out. It's four already. And I go, December 4th, you sold out? And I, I just looked at it. It was 10 neutral eyeshadows. But she had named it Naked and written Naked. So great. This <laughs> and she's, I've heard her speak, and she does give me this credit, so I appreciate it. But she's, I'm the first one that said, Keep doing it. I mean, this isn't a Christmas thing. This is this is <laughs> and I kept thinking naked be, could be a franchise. Yeah. So we did, you know, naked lips, naked skin, etc., and became a huge part of the business. But I, so I think my strength is if you're a great entrepreneur, you you're true to your brand. Um, I know with limited time and money, because that's what private equity has: limited time and money. What levers? To, to push and which levers to let go um, and try to take a brand. We bought brands, didn't buy brands, we bought urban, but I'm sorry, we invested mainly between 15 and 40 million in revenue. Mm -hmm. So we tried to get you to a hundred plus so we could sell you to a strategic. Yep. Um, and, and we didn't buy any brands that were not profitable, but we bought brands that maybe were barely profitable and we could see a road to serious profitability. Did you have any that didn't work out? Not at Castanea. I personally have had, I've done several on my own. I did do Dollar Shave Club, which is a, a great win, yep. but I did Sugarfina, which was a great disaster. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I did Sugarfina. What I learned from Sugarfina, and this could apply in beauty, uh, very smart entrepreneurs who had a very clever brand, but I'm going to say this on your podcast. They didn't let, I wasn't on their board. That's another thing. I won't be on any, I won't invest in any other company. I'm not on the board yep. and not that I could have saved Sugarfina. I couldn't have because they had great people on their board, yep. but they truly, I didn't, I think they chose to just do follow their own path. Yep. And I think I need an entrepreneur that will listen. Yep. Uh, 
and 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 it doesn't mean they do what you say, but it, they're listening. Yeah. And, you know, and really they know who to value and who not to value. So um, so I, that to me was a great disappointment. That one. If there were any changes they could have made that would have helped the company or that, I mean, obviously you never know. Right. But if they had like and this, this doesn't have to be your advice, but imagine they are saying like, oh, I would have done this differently. What do you think some of those things would have been? I think one key one is they were going heavy into retail, their own stores mm -hmm. at a time where I think it could have been a brilliant brand online. Yeah. It just sort of had the best website. Uh, I just think it, it just that it was a natural. It could have done phenomenal that way. And they had one, but the focus was on the retail stores and it was not the time. It was not the time for that. And I think that's another thing. When you're doing your own business plan, what is what's happening it in now? What is happening now? Yes, study history, what works, what builds great brands, but what is happening now and how applicable is it? 100%. You know, I don't want to go back too much, but I, you, when you talked about kind of the naked branding, it made me think of a story and I, I'm going to butcher the story, but the gist of it is what matters. Um, so there's this very famous entrepreneur, been very successful. And one of his first successes was there was this industrial fan company. And, you know, the name of the company was like Industrial Fan Co. or something like that, right? Some generic name. And so, you know, but they had this very unique product, very high quality, fit a specific need. So he bought the business and renamed it Big Ass Fans, right? And like, and then, you know, whatever, 5X the business, sold it for 10X what he bought it for, and basically just did that over and over again, right? Which is like, um, and it sounds so silly. And I think it's like, that's not necessarily what I would have done, but clearly it worked out. And um, I think being willing to be bold and being willing to say, you know, I'm going to be a little silly here is like, is something most people aren't willing to do, right? And it's, uh, I don't know, you just see examples of this over, it's like the better than sex mascara, right? With two That's right. Um, right. So yeah, I just love that story. Um, so let's talk about boards. So obviously you did get a board roles, Tatcha, First Aid, um, uh, et cetera, Urban Decay. And then more recently you've been on the board of the Astros, which I'm gonna get to in a little bit, um, on the board of Olaplex, which just went public. What do you think are the good qualities of a board member, right? You already said like having the entrepreneurs be willing to kind of hear you is something that's important from their perspective. But for you, how do you try to operate as a board member? Like what, what is your approach there? Um, yeah. Well, I think when someone's putting a board together mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to use the Olaplex board as a great example, Trisha Glenn, my partner who put together such a great board and she, we each have different expertise. So out of 10 people, I mean, we all bring different things. Yep. And um, I, I love that. I, I find, you know, whatever the problem is at Olaplex, if it's audit, we have a former CFO, you know, that uh, has done, was it Lululemon's board? Yep. I mean, just everybody has a great deal of expertise in their marketing, whatever it is. Uh, but I, I would say that's been the the most terrific board because we are so balanced mm -hmm. and we all bring a different expertise. My expertise on the brands I did with Castaneda was product development. Um, and one of the things that dry bar was also a Castaneda. Yes. And, yes. and that was one that when we invested, they had nine dry bar salons, but no product. Mm -hmm. So my thesis on that one was different. I said, we can create a product brand around dry bar. Um, in fact, they used a yellow blow dryer as their icon and they were using black blow dryers in the salon. So I knew, well, <laughs> let's start with the yellow blow dryer. <laughs> start with yellow blow dryer. Yeah. They even had a light fixture with yellow blow dryers, but they didn't have real yellow blow dryers. So anyway, um, so, so that was my thesis there. But um, where I don't have certain expertise, um, say my partner, Steve Berg at Castaneda, well, he understood real estate like leases and all that. So that was not my strength. I learned, I try to learn on every board I'm on. I try to learn from every entrepreneur I meet. I mean, I've been very fortunate. Vicki Sy from Tatcha, Lily Gordon, 
from First Aid Beauty. It's it's just been fan, you know fantastic, and from Allie and Michael at at Drybar. So I've been very fortunate uh, to work with great founders. Um, but did I answer your question? Just <laughs> <laughs> I said, what was the uh, what were the qualities of a good board member? So for you, how do you try to contribute without you know while letting them be the entrepreneurs that they are? Totally. All right. Olaplex, the entrepreneurs are not there, but yep, the yep. senior leadership, I mean, we have Julie Wong, Tiffany Walden, Eric that run it, but I try to be t very available outside of the board to mm. them. If they need anything or they want to talk to me about anything, I am very available to them because you don't want to just be there for the board meeting. You yep. want to really be knowledgeable and you know, I'm constantly at Sephora, Ulta, learning, following, you know, all the brands you help um, online. So I know what is happening. Mm -hmm, I always mm -hmm. like to know where do we rank at these big Sephora and Ulta? Who's doing better? Why is that? Very competitive. Um, but trying to bring as much information as I can to, to the leaders of the brand and uh, be very available to them. Um, and, and they know my expertise is going to be marketing, retail, and product. Yep. That makes sense. Where, so let's talk about Olaplex for a second. It's come up a couple times and I think it's a pretty unique experience. I mean, you, it's just not very often you see what you saw, which is, and for those that, again, for those that don't know, Advent invested, I believe May, 2020. Um, which is, you know, however, no, January 2020, January 2020. I thought it was yeah, May 2020. Either way, invested a billion dollar valuation, $100 million in revenue. Those are kind of reported numbers. You don't have to correct them. Right. But now the, the numbers are a little bit more clear because they're on the public markets. Right. So it's a, you know, call it 15 X in the last two years, um, doing over 500 million in revenue, trailing 12 months, 500 plus. Um, it's just crazy, right? It went from growing, I think around 70% to growing over hundred percent year over year while maintaining some pretty absurd profitability. Um, what has that roller coaster been like these last two, two years? And I don't want to out you too much, but I remember you telling me when they first bought it, you're like, I don't know, you might've overpaid for this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what has that last two years been like, as well as what were your lessons? That was the first company you've ever taken public, at least as far as I know. Um, what was, uh, what were those two processes like the last two years and then the IPO process? Um, it's been a fascinating experience. I have mm -hmm. to say, um, one, the goal was not to take it public. The goal was to build a great brand. Yep. So, so it really was a result rather than a strategy, mm -hmm. um, in this particular case. But, um, I, I was very impressed with Advent. That was my first company. Now I'm an operating partner with Advent. And they could bring so much to the table. They have like 80 billion under investment where when I was at Castaneda, it was about a billion six. Yep. Very different. Uh, so I'm not used to having a whole toolkit available to me. Yep. So we 2020, we bought it in 2020, but we didn't know it was 2020 until March. Um, and then supply chain, very challenging. Well, well Advent is in 12 countries. Yeah. So if we couldn't get an ingredient for our formula, we could immediately go to someone at Advent and say, okay, can we get it in Germany? Can we get, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And I had access to things I am not used to from a global um, investor um, and really top people. So what Advent can offer, and I know there's other very large groups that can do this as well, but I had not seen this because really it was myself and Steve Berg that helped the brands. And now I have experts in cybersecurity, in supply chain, in social media, you know. And so when we invest in a brand today, we can say we have this cornucopia of things. What do you need? You don't yep. need it all. We wouldn't have bought you if you needed it all. But I'll <laughs> Which ones do you need? And then we have experts for a certain amount of time that will, A, get you running, and B, help you hire the right people. So that, that I do believe, they, just, they helped us maximize this Advent Senior Team, helped the leaders of uh, Olaplex, who were phenomenal, who worked so hard and came up with some great ideas to work with the hairdressers. And, you know, because their salons were closing down, they, they were very creative um, in how to handle 2020. 
So, so that was impressive. And then to do well in 2020, once we got back into stores, uh, it really accelerated. So it's well, especially with you guys had a lot of professional distribution, right? Which people weren't going to the salons at one point. So to continue to do well, um, is just like, I mean, it was, it's pretty wild what that ride is like and where you're going to go with it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about kind of their expertise in social, as well as, you know, what you've observed with some of your other investments, right? Cause if you were to look at some of your investments, like Tatcha was the number one brand we tracked in skincare when it came to EMV and, and influencers. Olaplex is the number one and has been for years when it comes to influencers and social. Um, first Aid Beauty and Urban Decay obviously are pretty good at social as well, or at least First Aid Beauty. I don't know when you exited Urban Decay. Um, but what is it about Olaplex, maybe even Tatcha, that you think led to them being so successful when it came to the, the social side of the business, social media side of the business? Well, on Olaplex, they started so early. I think, you know, 2014, they were very active in social. So I think they were early, relatively speaking. Yeah. Um, but I also think because of the hairdressers who were the natural influencers, um, it just, they created community. The thing is creating community. I don't think they lectured you. They sort of engaged you. Yeah. And I feel Tatcha does the same thing. So just really build a community around product that works. And the great thing about TikTok and Olaplex is that it works immediately. Uh, yeah. So go shower, you, you know, and, and I, I feel like they should put me on TikTok because it's improved my hair. <laughs> they say I'm not the right demographic, but that's what I'm <laughs> Having said that. Um, I do think you can show in a 15 second, I mean, you can show on TikTok the change so quickly. And then if you have a really authentic person who, you know, has their own hair salon, I just think the combination of all of that has worked so well for Olaplex. Yeah, it seems like they've really embraced that community of hairstylists in a meaningful way. Um, and, and to your point about community building, it's something that I actually didn't really understand what that meant until, you know, the last call it two years when I really saw tribes community start to form and it does take that long. It doesn't happen in six months, right? It takes a period of time to really build trust and relationships um, that result in community. Um, so I think it makes sense why it works. The, the visual nature of it certainly doesn't hurt either. But I mean, even the case of Tatcha, right? Tatcha, the products, the product packaging is visual, but the products themselves aren't particularly visual. Um, yet they still were, were incredibly successful. So let's talk a little bit about your, your baseball career. Um, so, you know, so you've got this long career in beauty and then you decide to get involved in baseball with the Astros. Um, and what I think is interesting about that, outside of the fact that they are theoretically um, very different industries, is when you joined, um, Houston was not doing very well, right? So they, I think, were, <laughs> they had their second year in a row, the year you joined, of being dead last in the league. Um, and, you know, they had a history of being successful, but weren't doing very well at the time. Um, and so I'm curious, one, what made you decide to get involved? outside of having some, some roots in Houston from the, the Foley's days. Um, and then two, the kind of second half of that story is they've now gone on to be very, very successful. So you joined in 2012, and then over the last six years, they've gone to the playoffs five out of the last six years, gone to the World Series um, three out of those six years. Um, you know, I know you said Jim Crane played a big role there, but tell me first, what made you decide to get involved um, and then second, you know, what do you think has led to such a rapid turnaround? Um, like what, what's, uh, what has contributed to that? Well, I love baseball. So we'll start with that. <laughs> okay. That I, helps. You know, I only work with things I love. So I love fashion. I love beauty. I love baseball, but who would think I'd have an opportunity to be a minority investor in the Houston Astros baseball team, but I did invest one, I read Moneyball when I had Laura Mercier and it resonated to me that Laura Mercier, my young baby brand was like the Oakland A's. We did not have the same monies available to us, expertise available to us that the New York Yankees had, 
but we had to compete with them. So I'm, I had my senior team at Laura Mercier read Moneyball. And say, I said, we're the Oakland A's and <laughs> is the New York Yankees. So to any entrepreneurs out there in beauty, it's a great business book more than, you know, baseball book. Because what they did, Billy Bean, who, who was running the Oakland A's, um, is he took metrics available to everyone and used them more efficiently and could analyze the potential of a player without using these uh, top scouts as much, et cetera, as yep. the other teams were. So it was an innovative approach with common you know, statistics available to all, but how he used those statistics. And it really has changed the game of baseball. So, so it's been fascinating. So that fascinated me. Yep. And, yep. and I love the book. It became a movie, et cetera. But the book is really, really good. So my friend Jim Crane decides to buy the Houston Astros. And, and he asked me, would I invest? And I thought, you know, we're a terrible team. He's a very savvy guy. He built Eagle Air Freight. He has Crane Logistics. He, he owns the Floridian Golf Course. He owns a lot of stuff. So I thought, let's see. Yeah. And I learned, I mean, I'm the only female investor most of the men are uber successful. Uh, Morgan from Kinder Morgan. I mean, we got a bunch of, you know, really wealthy guys that are doing it. But Jim didn't do it for ego. He did it to rebuild a team. Mm -hmm. He loved baseball, too. And uh, so it's been I've seen him rebuild a brand in a city that loves sports but didn't have any great teams. Yep. And it's just been great. We still can't compete with the New York Yankees or the L.A. Dodgers who could spend. They, have, they must not have a budget, um, but we do. We stick with our budget, but we have to be smarter and we have to take those statistics. So I'd say three things. One, Jim Crane, great leader. Yep. Two, a, a team that had the potential to be great, just had not. Um, three, he hired great people under him. Yep. That really knew what to do. And when they said, let's spend less on scouts and have, you know, 150 probably guys in our metric statistics world, and we do, top, top people. And we have chosen the right, you know, young players who develop into players that the Yankees and Dodgers want to then have. So that is a wild amount of people to have in metrics and statistics. Like you have five times as many people analyzing the players as you have players on the team, you know, like that's, that's pretty crazy. That's true. It's, it's been so exciting. And so I have been to the world series now three times and I have a world, world series ring with Gerwich on it and who would ever think. So it's been <laughs> a great experience. Probably not what you pictured back in uh, Mississippi when you were first getting started. Um, no. And then, you know, so I, you mentioned there a few times, right, kind of um, a lot of men, right? A lot of men at the executive level, a lot of men, you know, generally. And I think that uh, one of your unique perspectives um, is, you know, you rose up in a time during retail. I think you said you're one of two executive leaders that were women on the Foley's team. Um, and just generally, I think there weren't a lot of women in leadership back then got involved in a business, the Astros and baseball, that's gotta be very male dominated. I'd have to imagine. Um, and then separately, but, but then you've also, so you've spent a lot of time as an operator in businesses that are dominated by men, private equity is as well. Um, but separately, you've also spent a lot of time mentoring entrepreneurs that are women, right? Whether it was launching Laura Mercier, which. I think you said your first three recommendations were male makeup artists, but you wanted to work with a with, you know female makeup artist. And then you've got Vicky. You've got um, what was the uh, first aid beauty? I can't remember her name. Lily Gordon. Lily Gordon. Then you've got Urban Decay, right? Mm -hmm. and you've got uh, Ola or well, not Olaplex. But anyways, you've you've helped to mentor a lot of women that are also leaders or aspiring leaders. Um, what what? what is your advice to those women, right? As they're trying to kind of rise up within the ranks. And then what are some of the things? Um, yeah, I think advice is kind of where I want to start. So what is your advice to, if there was another woman that wanted to aspire to achieve what you achieved or what Vicky or the others, what would be your advice to them um, as they kind of embark on their career? 
You know, Connor, I really would give the same advice to a man or a woman. Yep. I really believe excel in your job. If you're in a corporate structure as I was in the first 18 years of my career, I mean, I had to stand out. I had to cre have the numbers, my yep. whatever. If I was a buyer, my, my uh, department had to have the numbers. If I was divisional, my division had to have the numbers. Um, set your goals high, but have a have a substantive plan, a business yep. plan. Yep. And um, years ago, I didn't get promoted at Foley's when they had told me I had the best numbers that year. And I went into the boss and I said, I can't believe I didn't get this job. And he said, I never met you. I met the one that got the job. You, mm. you are so uh, politically... Uh, naive. That's what he said. Look at So if you're in in a corporate, you can't. I can't change my personality, but don't be dumb. You know, know who's going to change. And so I thought, well, they just see my numbers. Yep. So there's a little bit more to it than that if you're in the corporate structure. But I always tried to excel. I tried to always know what my competition was doing. I tried to be the very best. And uh, and I would say that to a man or woman. Yep. But it's interesting when Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, came out, I read it and I was thinking, well, I mean, I leaned in. Uh, yep. But yep. when I read it, I could think of times at Foley's, again, only woman on the board of, of merchants at that time, um, that I maybe didn't. I maybe didn't lean in. Yeah. And um, and then in private equity, everyone that I've been working with went to Harvard and, you know, graduated special you know, they were all at the top of the class, et cetera. And, and I think you have to think I'm here because I bring a certain expertise. And I really say to women, lean in, yep. you know, lean in, have confidence in what you know and what you think, because really that's what a board is. Everyone should, you know, bring what they're thinking. And that's why divorce, diverse boards are so important. Um, but I would just say, Excel, I said that to man or woman, best you can, because that's how you win. Um, yeah. Relationship building is a real thing as well, right? I think that like, you know, people underestimate how important, you know, having FaceTime is the wrong word, but having FaceTime, right? So interesting. I undervalued it thinking, well, my numbers will speak for themselves. And he said, you're the most politically unsavvy person. So <laughs> So I got it. Yeah, I learned. Yeah, but yeah. I think you do have to do both for sure. I think that like if you do one without the other, right, um, that's where you kind of fall flat. Um, so you mentioned, so you've mentioned Moneyball now. You mentioned Lean In. You know, I publicly put like on my LinkedIn, I have all the books that I recommend. And I know that for me, when I we first started Tribe, I was so young or we were so young that I was like, I don't know anything about what I'm doing but you've got all this literature out there and anybody who writes a book, most people that aren't like professional authors, when they write a book, it's about the thing that they know the best in the world, right? Like this is the thing, my labor of love, ideally that you're then sharing with the world. What are some of the other books that you've thought were really foundational for you um, in your own professional development? You know, I, two books I read when I started Love Mercy, Good to Great and yep. Built to Last. Yep. Those two were very helpful to me. And one thing was they said, you have a bus. Yep. And, and as an entrepreneur, this was so helpful. Like I'm driving the bus, but I got to make sure everybody's in the right seats and I got the right team on the bus. Yep. Yep. Sometimes I think for entrepreneurs, the right team for me when I was zero to say 20 million was some people. And some of those people just loved the startup you know, that was so fun and we had to do everything ourselves. And then when you were 25 to 60, you maybe need some different skill sets and some. So I needed to change the bus a little bit. Yep. Um, yep. Then when I was trying to get to 100 and over the same thing. So so I learned from those books, even though they're talking about building much bigger companies than I ended up building at that time. Maybe now I get to help build one to a very big number. But um, so I found both of those, but I also think kind of not just business books. Yeah. I mean, I read Steve Jobs life. I mean, I've read Winston Churchill's life. I think biographies of great leaders, you really can learn as much from those books, not just business books, um, but biographies of great leaders that you admire. Yeah, I've read, so I've read, or so 
I 100% agree. And I, I, um, it's funny, I ended up reading three or four different biographies um, and in a row, right, that were came strongly recommended. So one of them actually was Steve Martin, who has a really good, I think it might be an autobiography. <laughs> and so it was Steve Martin, and then it was, um, God, why can't it, Edison, right? So it was an Edison one. Um, and then there was one other one and it was interesting, right? Cause they're all very different, different time periods, different industries, different, whatever. And what you found very consistently was just like, I mean, they just worked their, pardon my language, worked their ass off, right? Like they just every day, like if you want to, you should read the Steve Martin one. It's really good. Like to be a stand-up comedian is not, you know, it's not just cause you're funny, right? It's, you are grinding in the clubs rehearsing jokes. If you ever listen to um, that, Tim Ferriss does an interview with uh, Seinfeld, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. And it is fascinating. He's like, like the grind is actually what, what makes it successful. And so I agree. I think um, biographies are a great source. And I also, for those the Jim Collins is the one that wrote the uh, built to last. Uh, yeah. There's also great by choice, I think is another one he wrote. They're all, all really good. Okay, so last fun end of show question. And I'm actually curious to see, and you might get yourself in some trouble here with this one. Um, so if you had to pick, and this is very relevant considering what's happened this week, if you had to pick between a national championship for Alabama or a World Series for the Astros, who would you pick if you had to pick? That is tough. Um, my dream is to name um, my school at the University of Alabama, Gerwich Green, in name of my honor of my professor who helped me so much. So I have so much heart at the University of Alabama, but they always win. They <laughs> and Georgia did beat them and deservedly so. Georgia did great. So I would say I would love a World Series. I would yeah, love it. Yeah. They, um, I, I heard that uh, it was like 80% Georgia fans at the at the national championship really <laughs> and i think it's because the alabama fans are just like i don't know like we've been there <laughs> i think you've been there six out of the last seven years it's like yeah what are you gonna Georgia, do and not one since 1980 i feel it was their time yeah yeah <laughs> well i really appreciate you taking the time janet and um thanks again i know i learned a lot today and i know other people are going to appreciate it and good luck with olaplex as well as with your you know taking back over your 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 baby, right? Taking back your heart. So good luck with all that. Thank you, Connor. You, you're very good at this. <laughs> Thanks. I try. I try. All right. Bye, Janet. Hit bye -bye. subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at TribeDynamics.com. TribeDynamics.com.